We are finishing out our God of the Underdog series today, and it couldn't be a more appropriate day because God has showed his great power, and Alabama finally lost. Uh, It was was a great, great weekend. If you're an Alabama fan, uh, I guess you're not really amongst friends. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, There are some Alabama fans here, but we started out this series talking about how much I particularly love rooting for the underdogs, and uh, I did not expect Auburn to have a chance yesterday, but you never know what's going to happen. We had another miracle at Jordan-Hare, so uh, we all have plenty to be thankful for. Amen. Have you ever felt like you were different? Have you ever felt like all the the things that everyone around you is passionate about, everything that they're engaged in, everything that they're invested in, just didn't quite seem to matter to you? Have you ever felt like everything that was going on around you just seemed insignificant and meaningless, and yet everywhere you looked, others seemed to be so caught up in it. We're going to look at an underdog today who had a story like that. Have you ever felt like, like the character that Will Ferrell played in the movie Zoolander named Mugatu who said this, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. Have you ever looked at everything around you and said it just doesn't quite add up? My wife and I were fortunate enough to be invited over to Tim and Kim's house for Thanksgiving dinner. Thank you, Tim and Kim. Uh, it was awesome. And as we were over there, one of the ladies who shall remain nameless uh, multiple times had something to say. Because you see, Tim and Kim are godly uh, just red-blooded, patriotic Americans. And so during Thanksgiving, they had the football game on. Praise God. As well they should have. Uh, And as the football game was on, there was one lady in particular who just didn't seem to appreciate it very much. And about four or five different times throughout the evening, or throughout the afternoon, she said this, who cares about football? Who cares about football? And then one time it was kind of like, who cares about football? And while I'm obviously one who does care deeply about football, I can sympathize and empathize with this dear lady uh, because I've been in situations where everyone seemed to care about something and I did not. See, I was a youth pastor during the age of Justin Bieber and Twilight, (laughs) surrounded by people who were caught up in things that I just didn't quite make sense to me. But you see, John the Baptist was exactly like that. John the Baptist lived in a generation where everywhere he looked, he saw greed. He saw selfishness. He saw deceitfulness. He saw hypocrisy. And the generation, the culture that he was in, he just couldn't quite make sense of it all. It just didn't ever click for him. He actually had a dream. He had an underdog dream to restore the culture, to bring his people, the Jewish people, to repentance. And so as we look at this sixth underdog from the book, The God of the Underdogs by Pastor Matt Keller, what we see, what we learn from John the Baptist is that when we have a dream from God, it doesn't matter how strange it may seem to others, we have to pursue it. You see, John had a dream that was totally revolutionary, totally contrasting to the culture that he lived in. Nobody understood it. It didn't make any sense to him. John was, to use a word from our day and age, he was weird. This was a guy who dressed in camel hair, who ate locusts for protein and honey for carbs, and that was it. 
That wasn't his Daniel fast. That wasn't the thing he did for 21 days at the beginning of the year. He ate locusts and honey day after day after day. He was different than everyone around him. He even moved off into the wilderness by himself. He just didn't see things the way everyone else did. But what was so unique about John the Baptist wasn't just his clothing or his diet or even his living location. It was his message. And I believe that it was his message that was so relevant 2,000 years ago, I believe it is still pertinent to us today. And even though John the Baptist passed on from this life many, many years ago, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the anointing is still on his words. So what I'd like you to do is open up your Bible to Luke chapter 3. And we're going to look at the life of John the Baptist. Primarily, we're going to look at the message of John the Baptist this morning. Luke chapter 3 Starting in verse 1 says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and Traconidas, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. So it just gives us basically the context of who was ruling in this day and age. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So God came and spoke to John, who is his prophet. He says, He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, and basically Isaiah forecasted, he, he prophesied about this man who would come, this messenger, this final prophet who would prepare the way for Jesus Christ. And this is what Isaiah wrote about him. He said, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight. The rough paths smooth. And all people will see God's salvation. It's pretty awesome right there, isn't it? You're the person who's been appointed to be the one who makes all people see God's salvation in the form of Jesus Christ. At this point in time, John the Baptist doesn't seem... So different, doesn't seem so strange. He seems pretty cool. Seems like he's got an incredible calling on his life, which he did. But in the next verse, we discover how different John really was. And here it is in verse number 7. It says, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him. So John's popular. He's magnetic. He's charismatic. People are coming out into the wilderness to get baptized by John the Baptist. Pretty impressive anointing on his life. And you know what he says when they get there? He's not high-fiving them. He's not throwing them some swim trunks. Here's what he says when they show up. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? He says, you brood of vipers, you family of snakes. What made you suddenly start to care about the way that you live? His message seems harsh. But you see, you have to understand the sin in his generation was so serious that John had to confront it head on. And I believe that we live in a generation just as wicked, just as sinful, just as rebellious as John did. And sometimes, though it's not necessarily my nature, my default mode like it seems to have been with John, sometimes we got to just hit it head on. Sometimes we have to speak directly to it, as we move forward in Luke chapter 3, we're going to discover five focuses of John the Baptist's message, five emphases 
that he had that were for his generation, for his day and age, but I believe that are also for us today. What I want you to do is I would ask you to receive this message just like his hearers did 2,000 years ago, to open up your heart, your mind, your spirit, to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you, to reveal to you if any of these five emphases, any of these five focuses are perhaps lacking or perhaps weak in your own life, that we could use John's warning, we could use his encouragement as a warning that, hey, I need to strengthen this area. I need to get this area under control. Verse 8 says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. So we see the very first focus of John the Baptist's ministry. In fact, one that, that runs all throughout everything we see him preach on is the focus of consistency. You see, he said you need to produce fruit in accordance with repentance. The things that were coming out of their mouths, the actions they were taking to get baptized said one thing, but their life said something else. The fruit they were producing was invalidating the things they were saying. You see, in this point in time, at this day and age, it was cool to go out to John for the adventure of the wilderness baptism. Man, there's a crazy dude out in the desert. He's talking funny. He's wearing funny stuff. We're going to go out and see what he has to say, and we're going to let him baptize us. It became trendy to do what was right, but it didn't become trendy for the right reasons. And so their actions were contrary to their hearts, and John spoke directly to it. He says, you need to produce fruit that lines up with the repentance that's coming out of your mouth. You need to walk consistency. When I was 14 years old, my family in Seattle, Washington, started to talk about the possibility of moving across the country. My dad had lost his job and was looking for a new opportunity, and it began to look like we were going to move. And when I lived in Seattle, uh, which I, I had been born there and lived in the same house my entire life up to this point, uh, Seattle is very outdoorsy part of the country. There's mountains and lakes, and, and it's just a very beautiful part of the country. And so long before twilight, I wanted to go and see the rainforest on the Olympic Peninsula. It was something I had asked to do time and time and time again. I want to go to Forks. I want to go see the rainforest. And for a number of reasons, we never quite had the opportunity. So when we started to talk about moving, I was like, okay, before we move, I got to see the rainforest. Like that's, that's like the one deal. I will let you take me away from my home, from my school, from my church, from my friends, but I got to see the rainforest first. Dad's like, okay, I'll make sure that you get to see the rainforest. Well, in November of 1995, we packed the moving truck and headed for North Carolina, and I had not yet seen the rainforest. My dad did not keep that promise. And I'm not here to, to bash my father. I am blessed with a godly dad. I am blessed with a loving dad. I am blessed with a dad who's in my life. I am blessed so much more than I even realize with a great father. But can I tell you that for that 14-year-old boy, that unkept promise hurt. Those words that came out of his mouth that said one thing and the actions that did something else caused some pain. It caused some bitterness. It brought some doubt and some lack of trust in our relationship. And here I am, 32, almost 33 years old, and one day looking at fatherhood myself, and I feel the weight of that. I feel the weight of that as a husband, that I know I'm very capable of saying one thing 
and doing another. See, consistency is so incredibly valuable and sometimes it's so hard, especially if you're like me and you're a words person and it's real easy for the words to come out. Sometimes it's a lot harder for the life to line up. But we must aspire, we must commit, we must dedicate ourselves to being people of consistency. See, you didn't come out this morning to be baptized, but you did get up and get dressed and come to church. So my question for you is this, is your life producing fruit consistent with that decision? So we say here all the time that we are an imperfect church full of imperfect people pursuing a perfect God, and that is absolutely true. I don't want to invalidate that at all. I am the most imperfect of the imperfect. However, the fact that we are imperfect together and and imperfect as individuals does not excuse us from pursuing the perfection that Jesus paid for. Just Because we are flawed, just because we have a sin nature and a human nature, that means it's okay that we have a past, but it doesn't mean it's okay for us to be content in our sinfulness. And we must pursue the very best that God has for us. We must pursue a life that lines up with the sacrifice that Jesus made. Sometimes that's not the easiest message to hear. Sometimes it's not the funnest message to preach. But I encourage you this morning, I extol you this morning to pursue consistency in your life. That the way you live on Tuesday would match up with the way you worship on Sunday. That the way you live on Thursday would line up with the things you say at Citigroup on Monday. We must be people of consistency. Are you lacking consistency this morning? Maybe it's in the way you talk. Perhaps it's in the things that you do when nobody's around. Maybe it's what you do when you're around a certain group of friends. If you're lacking consistency, I'd encourage you to address it, repent from it, turn from it. Moving on in Luke chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, the crowd responds and say, What should we do then? John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. This lines up perfectly with what Josh shared with us in our offering, but the second emphasis of John's ministry, the second emphasis and focus of his message was generosity. Here at City Church, we have a motto, we have a a mission statement, we have a purpose. We say that we'll exist to reach our city by reaching one. We believe that we have a, a mandate from God to get out of our doors, to get out into our community, to show the love of Jesus, one person, one family, at a time to reach them wherever they're at. We actually believe that our community should be better because we're here. We believe that Olive Branch should be a better town because God chose to plant a church here. We pursue that very passionately, very fully. And so we have this ministry that we call Mission OB. And many of you took part in it last Sunday as we set up for our clothing giveaway, for our turkey dinner giveaway. Uh, Many of you came Monday night as we gave all of those things away, and so many showed up here for free clothing. So many of us went over to the Candlelight Estates right across the street and gave out turkey dinners. And and I just want to say thank you as your pastor. Thank you for modeling generosity. Thank you for giving not just of your money, but for giving of your time, for giving of your effort. Man, can we give a round of applause for everybody who participated in that? 
I want to give two special shout-outs. The first one is for a lady who's not here today. She's actually down visiting her daughter in Florida. But Becky Brown, for the third year in a row, brought 10 turkeys for our turkey giveaway. That woman has invested over $300 in turkey into the kingdom of God the last three years. And I think that's awesome. So if you would, man, when you see Becky in the next week or two, just tell her thank you. She has no idea I'm saying this, and she would be bright red if she knew it. But she's not here, so that's what you get for going out of town, Becky. Uh, I get to talk about you. Second person I want to recognize is Destiny Smith. She is super embarrassed, and she is here today, so we get to enjoy this. Destiny uh, got in touch with me last Sunday, and and she had this dream. She had this idea that, that God had planted in her heart. She wanted to bake some pies for the people who we were taking Thanksgiving dinners to. And so we talked out a few different options, and, and we locked in that Candlelight Estates actually gave us a list of the 11 families that were the highest priority, that were the most in need. And so Destiny spent Sunday, and I don't know, Monday perhaps, maybe made Dan do some work too, I'm not sure. But she got in the kitchen, and she made 11 pies for the, t- the families that needed it the most, to go above and beyond. Even the turkey that we were taking them, even the six different sides we were taking, Destiny wanted them to have a homemade pie for Thanksgiving. So thank you, Destiny. Man, thank you for, for investing into the kingdom of God, for helping us to reach our city by reaching one. One of the greatest ways that we can reach people that way is through generosity. You see, God uses generosity to demonstrate to the world his love in ways that words never can. Generosity speaks a language that the English or Hebrew or Greek could never communicate to anyone. Shows people Jesus. So the question is this morning, how generous are you? And we're entering what was many times called the season of giving. And I hope that that is true in your life as well as my own. The opportunity for us to give of ourselves, of our time, of our opportunity, of our finances to those who have less, to those who are in need. It's an incredible thing. Obviously, we give because God gave to us. He gave his son such an incredible gift. Moving on to verse 12, it says, Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. This focus is very closely tied to number one, but because John repeats it twice in the passage, I I think it bears repeating for us. And so we're going to turn just a little bit different than we did in number one. We're going to call it the third focus of John's message, integrity. Very close to consistency, but integrity. He, you see, these tax collectors in this day and age, they were notorious. They were well-known throughout the kingdom of Rome for lacking integrity. The Roman Empire would commission them. They would hire someone to collect taxes, and a tax collector would sit at a gate. And when somebody came to that gate, perhaps they owed $20 in taxes. The tax collector could upgrade that tax as high as they wanted and keep the difference. And so tax collecting was a business full of corruption. It was a business full of deceit, a business full of greed. And tax collectors were the lowest of the low in the Hebrew culture because they were viewed as traitors, because they were Jews who were working for the Romans. And so these Jews were actually exploiting their own people, capitalizing on their own people, stealing from their own 
people. And so as these tax collectors even come out to John, John speaks specifically to them. They want to get baptized. They want to follow in this thing, this act of repentance. What should we do? And John says, don't collect any more tax than you're required to. Quit lying. Quit deceiving. Quit stealing. Begin to walk in integrity. When I was in Bible college, I went to a school in northeast Georgia called Tacoa Falls College, and I had some great experiences there. I had some not so great experiences there, but one of the systems that they had at this school, which was just awful, is they had basically an attendance honor system. So we, if we missed any more than, 11, than 10 classes in a semester, you automatically failed that class, and the only way that they would register whether you were there was the honor system, so they had a sign-in sheet. So you would come in and put your name on the sign-in sheet, and that's what was evidence that you attended class. So what did many of my friends who were going to be pastors and missionaries and other ministers determine very quickly in their time at school? I don't have to go to class. You can sign me in. And so one person would go to class, and yet five people would be there on the attendance sheet, and they would take turns. And I stand before you today very, very flawed and very imperfect, but I can tell you, and I have the grades to prove it, I failed two classes because I would not let somebody else sign me in. I'm not proud of the fact I failed two classes. I was most likely to succeed in middle school and high school. There's no reason why I should have failed two classes except pure laziness and apathy. But I would not lower myself to the level of letting anybody sign me in. I told them straight up, and I wouldn't do it for anybody else either. And I can stand before you today at 32 years old, ashamed of myself for failing two classes, but very, very proud of the fact that I didn't let somebody else sign me in. I would much rather have two F's on my permanent record that I earned than two A's that I did not. Church, we got to walk in integrity. we got to be the people that we say we are. We've got to live up to the calling that God has placed on our lives. And so often, God's people lower ourselves to the expectations of the workplace or lower ourselves to the expectations of the school, or lower ourselves to the expectations of the culture around us when God is calling us to something greater. And I challenge you, if there's an area of your life that is lacking integrity, deal with it head on, confront it, don't ignore it, don't turn off the sound of the Holy Spirit's voice in your ear, don't run from it, deal with it we got to be people of integrity. What would the people who know you best say about you? What would your family say if I were to ask them, does daddy walk in integrity? Is mommy a person of integrity? What would they say? What would the person who knows you best, what would their testimony about you be? Even beyond that, what is your own testimony about yourself? See, there's things that only God knows and you know, in your own life, and in mine. And if I were to be honest, there's some things that I'm not proud of in my life, some areas that I could do a better job of walking in integrity. And I think most of us, if we were to be real, look in the mirror, we see some things that we wish weren't, weren't there, whether people around us realize it or not. Let's be people of integrity. Let's be people who do the same thing 
whether somebody is watching or whether somebody is not. You know, in, in construction, and I'm really construction-oriented, so I can tell you this from experience. I'm like the least handy person in this room. Uh, but in construction, if a piece of wood has integrity, what that means is that it has the same strength here and here and here and here. So a piece of wood without integrity is strong here and strong here, but has a weak spot here. See, a person of integrity is someone who has the same strength when their friends are around or their family's around or no one is around. And that's the kind of person that God is calling us to be. That's the kind of person that John the Baptist was compelling those who heard him to be. He said, quit the deceit, quit being fake, quit being phony, quit cheating people, quit cutting corners just because you can get away with it. Walk in integrity. And I believe that encouragement is for us today. Verse 14, it says, Then some soldiers asked him, And what should we do? He replied, Don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely, kind of keeping along the same lines of integrity. But then he says this, the fourth focus of his message, Be content with your pay. See, the fourth focus of John's message was contentment. Contentment. Contentment, I believe, is the key to true freedom. You see, Pastor Andy Stanley, the pastor of North Point Church in the Atlanta area, says this. He says that true freedom says, I could, I just choose not to. I could cheat on my wife, but I choose not to. I could get away with not paying my tithes, but I choose not to. I could cheat the IRS but I choose not to. I could tell my children one thing and do something else, but I choose not to. See, contentment comes when I could buy that 57-inch flat-screen TV on credit, but I choose not to. Contentment comes when we learn the things that we don't have to have, when we learn to say, I could, but I choose not to. You see, there's a disease in our human condition and it's the disease that really fleshes itself out often this time of year and it's called the disease of more i've got to have more more money more success more fame more attention more stuff i've got to have more and understand this i'm a christmas guy to the core i am sentimental i love christmas i love everything about it i love christmas music i love was the night before christmas i love christmas movies like i'm wanting to watch like yogi bear's christmas i don't care what it is if it's christmas i am into it i love christmas decorations and christmas lights and christmas food amen i love it all i'm a big christmas person but this time of year many times i found myself in discontentment in my life and many times that discontentment is not discontentment with the family that I get to spend the holidays with it's not discontentment with the Jesus that God gave me it's simply discontentment with what I got for Christmas how sad is that that I would let something in a box that wasn't exactly what I wanted that someone gave to me steal my joy around the birth of Jesus what a terrible testimony. And I've walked in that lack of contentment year after year in my life. 
last year, my wife and I, we decided to do something different. And last year, we took this step, and we made the commitment to each other. We weren't going to buy each other gifts. And we actually kept that commitment, by the way. I know a lot of times wives say that, and it's really like, you really need to buy me something, but I'm going to say you don't buy me something. We actually did this, and I'm still married. So she, she went by her word. Uh, but we didn't buy each other any gifts. Instead, we gave each other a gifts budget to give away. So we each had X amount of dollars that we were able to give to any organization, any charity, any ministry that God laid on our heart. And so we prayed through, and we both kind of went different directions with our giving budget, but we were able to give to others, to people who needed it, to ministries that could advance the kingdom of God rather than getting something for ourselves. And while it was awesome, I'm not saying you need to do this. I'm not trying to put this on anybody. This is between us and God. We're not even doing it this year. So I'm not saying you need to do this. But here's what I found out last year. My Christmas was awesomely content. I woke up on Christmas morning not worried about did somebody get me the thing that I wanted, but getting to think about the fact that we were able to bless some kids We were able to bless some ministry. We were able to advance God's kingdom. And that brought us contentment. And so I'd encourage you this Christmas season, determine to walk in contentment. Whatever you get or don't get for Christmas, whatever you choose to do in your family, however you express that thing. And when you do give gifts, man, give good gifts. Be somebody who's generous. Walk in that and bless people. But when you're on the receiving end, determine... I'm going to have contentment. When you go to a Christmas party with family members or in-laws, walk in contentment. Choose to be content with what you have because here's the truth, church. We sang about it 20 minutes ago. Christ is enough. How many times do I invalidate that statement with the way that I live? How many times does my discontentment tell the world that he's not enough? But the truth is Christ is enough. In fact, he's not just enough. He's more than enough. He's abundant. He's above and beyond everything I could ask, think, or dream of. And the closer I get to him, the more I fall in love with him, the more I can walk in true contentment. And Paul said to his apprentice, to his intern, to his understudy, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. You see, we walk in discontentment because we feel like we didn't gain something we desired, but God flips it through the Apostle Paul, and he says, godliness with contentment is gain. So whether I get anything else, I'm content, and that is actually gain in and of itself. Contentment is an incredible blessing that most of us never walk in. It's contrary to our human nature. So I ask you this morning, how content are you? How content are you with your relationships? How content are you with your stuff? How content are you with your paycheck? Because that's specifically what John the Baptist was speaking to in this passage. How content are you today? And I'm not saying we can never aspire to more. I'm not trying to uh, squash ambition. I believe ambition is a God-given thing. If you're looking to move up in the ranks at your company because, man, you believe there's more gifts in you, go for it. Be blessed, man. I want to see you. I believe God's people are called to be victorious. 
but we should not do that because of some lack of contentment that will never be satisfied until we get that promotion, until we get that raise, until we get that Christmas bonus, because when you get the bonus, you're not going to be satisfied. When you get the raise, you're not going to be satisfied. When you get the promotion, you're not going to be satisfied. We've got to choose to be content in Jesus right where we're at with what we have today, even if that becomes less tomorrow. We must always choose to be content. Verse 15 and 16, it says, The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. There's some pressure for you. You've stepped up. You've been different. You've called people to repent. Maybe you're God. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit here we find the ultimate focus of John's message, the ultimate purpose of John's entire life, the reason he existed, the reason he got up in the morning, uh, simply this, John pointed people to Jesus. He pointed people to Jesus. Can you see? John was so Christ-like that people thought he was Jesus. When you walk in consistency, when you walk in generosity, when you walk in contentment, when you walk in integrity, when those first four focuses of your life are prevalent, when they're public, when people can see them consistently over time, people start to think you look like Jesus. People thought John was the Messiah because he embodied those characteristics. And I'm not trying to put the pressure on you to be Jesus because you never could be. But I am telling you, we're supposed to look like him. We're supposed to be his reflection to a lost, hurting, dying, empty world. And John got it because he walked in consistency, because he lived a life of integrity, because he modeled generosity, because he discovered contentment. He could point people to Jesus. So let me ask you this as we get ready to wrap this up. John 3.30, John's famous statement that he must become greater and I must become less. Is that evident in your life? Is there a seesaw going on where where God's becoming greater and you're becoming less? Or is it kind of wavering? Good days... And bad days, are there God days and me days? Are there Sundays and every other day? Where is your scale? What's the balance? Is he becoming greater while you're becoming less? Because that's the vision, that's the purpose, that's exactly who we're supposed to be. And I believe the key to walking in that is found in the message of John the Baptist that we would have consistency, that we would be generous, that we would walk in integrity, that we would discover contentment, and that at every opportunity in every aspect of our life, we would point people to Jesus. Not just as a pastor or a worship leader or a small group leader or a kid city teacher, although all of those are awesome opportunities that God has given us, but that we would walk in such a way that we point people to Jesus in our workplace, in our neighborhood, in our family, at the Thanksgiving table, around the Christmas tree, when all the chaos and the stress and the pressure of 
life and in-laws and family and stuff comes crashing down, are we pointing people to him? Are we pointing people to us? What do they see when they look at your life? What do you see when you look at my life? I'm certainly not saying I've got this figured out or I've got it mastered, but I see a call to something greater in the life of John the Baptist, in this underdog who is weird, who had a dream that didn't make sense to everyone else, and who laid down his life for that dream, by the way. He gave it all up for the cause of pointing people to Jesus. Would that all of us be worthy of that type of a calling. Not that I want us to die, not that I want my head cut off, because I don't. I'll be real, I like my head. It's cool where it's at. Uh, But that we would live such a life that people see Jesus in us, and if they hate Jesus, they hate us. That's what happened to John. They hated Jesus, so they hated him, because he looked just like Jesus. So as we wrap up today, I have one final question for you. If this message was, or let's say your life is a bucket, and these five areas, these five focuses of John's ministry are potential holes. Maybe there's an integrity hole in your bucket. Maybe there's a pointing people to Jesus hole in your bucket. Maybe there's a contentment hole. What are the two lowest holes on your bucket? Maybe you got all five of them. Which holes are the lowest? Which holes are the ones that are causing stuff to run out the quickest? Which are are the most prevalent, the need to be addressed the most? Maybe it's contentment. Maybe it's consistency. Maybe it's integrity. Maybe it's generosity. Maybe it's simply pointing people to Jesus. But I encourage you to locate those holes, to, to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to your heart where those holes are. What area do I really need to focus on? And man, as we head into December, as we head into the happiest month of the year, go to work. Start patching some holes. Start plugging some holes. Start addressing these areas that all of us could walk in consistency and in integrity and in generosity and contentment and ultimately become less as he becomes greater as we point people to Jesus. Let's pray.